and 89.3 KPFB and Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF and Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Literary Dialogues with Nina Serrano, bringing you wonderful poets and writers who focus on peace, justice, and a healthy planet. I'm your host, Nina Serrano. Our guests today are a mother and daughter writing team, Dina and Becky Taylor. Their book, Tell Me the Number Before Infinity, gives us an up-close and personal view of raising a disabled child to adulthood, as well as the viewpoint of the child as she comes of age. Like all good literature, Tell Me the Number Before Infinity by Dina and Becky Taylor brings the interior life into focus. Both write poetry. Their poetic sensibilities illuminate this important book. Welcome, Dina and Becky Taylor. Thank you, Nina. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure that you are here. So tell us, what was the impulse to write the book? How did it begin? Well, we, we've both always just written things down. I mean, oh, from a young age, and some of it started at school assignments for me, and, and then we would go through them, and finally we just decided that we have a book and we should get them out. Yeah, I found that I had drawers full, desk drawers full of things that I had written ever since Becky was born. You know, just wrote down things that happened, things she said, things I was feeling, things I was feeling about what she was going through. Yeah, and like Becky said, when, when I think it was her idea, she said, we should put this into a book. By that time, you know, she was an adult and we weren't living in the same place and we would email our thoughts back and forth, you know, and we'd revise things and send them to each other, and we never changed each other's, you know, but we, we could give our opinion of what each other wrote. And then a lot of times that was the impetus for each of us to write our own version of what, had, what the other one had said, and sometimes it's quite different. Yes, sometimes it's quite different. Yeah. So what was the collaborative process like then? It was a, an email, and email. finally you must have holed up somewhere and gotten it done, or no? No, we just hold, I mean, we were in our own places of residence. You know, I was in my home, and Becky was in her, her apartment. But, you know, we would get together very often and talk about it and sort through this huge stack of papers. And, you know, we were trying to decide, should we do it section by section, like physical therapy and childhood and family stuff, surgeries, you know, and then we thought, no, let's let's just do it chronologically from birth to, what, age 40, about? Yeah. And so, of course, at the beginning of the book, there's more of my writings, because Becky wasn't really writing <laughs> when she was born. And at the end, really, it's more of her. So, did you decide in advance what themes you wanted to promote? Not really. No, no, no. 
I wouldn't say that. No, I don't think so. I just wrote... That's why there's such a variety of things in, in the book. As Becky mentioned, a lot of the, her writing uh, was school, you know, you know how they do with kids. Yeah, right, right. You do over the summer and all that. And so her writing was about her experiencing being in that first group of kids to be mainstreamed, as they called it then, now they call it inclusion. So, Becky, I know you're a poet and also that you, Dina, also are a poet. Could we begin with one of your poems, Becky? Yeah. Okay, so this poem is called Some People. I scare some people with my presence. Not many know how to react when they see me. There are strangers who who use simple words when talking to to me. Some raise the pitch of their voice. Others increase the volume. People I've never seen before come up to tell me how lucky I am, how brave. People expect many things from me. Some want me to teach them. Others expect me to be stupid. Others want me to solve the world's problems. Many are amazed that I'm just living my life. Many don't listen to what I'm saying. Many don't want to let go of their ideas. However, somehow. Thank you. That was a good reading. Well, thank you. So, Dina, how did the title of the book come about? Well, I actually could read the short chapter of how it came about. Wonderful. Okay. Then the chapter is called, Tell Me the Number Before Infinity. We first became aware of Becky's mathematical ability when she was four years old. Rodney and I were going to make our own candles for our Hanukkah menorah, and we're talking about how many we would need. One the first night, two the second, and so on for eight nights plus a shamus candle every night for lighting the others. Becky looked up at us and said, You need 44 altogether. We looked at her, looked at each other, knelt down close and asked her how she knew that. One night when I was lying in bed, I figured out how to do that sort of problem, she told us. We recognized it as a son of the series problem, not the usual fodder for a four-year-old's mind, It's calculus, my brother John said when I told him. From that day on, Becky astounded us all by figuring out complicated mathematical functions in her head. She could multiply two three-digit numbers faster than my father could get the answer on his calculator. Not long after this, Becky was still four. She and Rodney were having one of their playful discussions about numbers. Becky had to come back to all the questions he put to her. Finally, he asked, Okay, smarty pants, here's one for you. Is infinity an odd or an even number? She thought about this for a bit, smiled, and said to her dad, Tell me the number before infinity. I remember a time when she was in first grade, and Rodney asked her, What is 346 times 12? I'd have to figure it out. It's 4,152. How did you do that? 
I took half of 346, which is 173, and added it on. That makes 519, right? Then I double it, and that makes times 3, right? Then I multiply that times 2, and then I multiply that times 2. Look what they give her in school, Rodney said to me, and handed me a sheet with 3 plus 2, 6 plus 1, 5 plus 2. At 6, Becky told Rodney and me, I know what my dreams will be. She told Rodney she was going to have a dream about a picture that was made of tiny dots of every color, and the next morning she said she did dream it. She said that in between her dreams there are little pictures about the end of the next dream. She told me one day while she was undressing for a bath, my mind knows everything. It even knows the plan for the last day of the world. Really? What is the plan? I haven't asked my mind yet, she said. I have to do it at a different time. From about age seven, Becky always balanced my checkbook. She was great to shop with because she could figure out the best buys in an instant, and she was quite useful in a restaurant when it was time to divide the bill and figure out the tip. In school, she was always put into the highest math class, and every year she won first, second, or third place for her grade in the county math contest. Since she had difficulty writing, the test officials provided her with a writer who put Becky's answers on the test. She never used the scratch paper that was provided. She did it all in her head. Wow. Is that still true? Yes. Not quite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you now use paper and pencil or a computer? Now I use a, a more traditional way of figuring out math problems in my head. So do you have other portions that you think you might want to read? How about, shall I read Decision? Yeah. Okay. This takes place later when Becky was about 14? About 16. 16. Okay. Called Decision. The lunchtime crowd had left, and it was too early for dinner, so we were the only ones on the restaurant's patio overlooking the creek. It had been my idea to come here. I needed a drink. As I sat with my hand around my glass, Becky looked straight into my eyes and told me, in that serious way she has, that she was quitting school. I can't do this anymore, she said. We had just come from a meeting at her high school, and I can't remember now if it was the meeting I called because her biology teacher told her not to ask questions in class because her speech was too slow or the meeting I called when her history teacher pushed her back out of the classroom after the special bus dropped her off late, or the meeting that was set up because her Spanish teacher had, asked, had said to the class, no one picked Becky for their group, so who will take her? And no one had answered. I'm tired of being a trailblazer, she told me, her brown eyes wide and sad. Still makes me sad to read this. Her word for herself made me think back to the time ten years earlier when I had watched her go eagerly into her first grade classroom, her walker drawing curious looks from the other children. She was filled with excitement and expectation and the innocence of a six-year-old. Okay, I said, knowing what she had been through in her first two years in high school. That is, I thought I knew. <laughs> that is, I thought I knew. It would be years before I found out things that neither Becky nor Anna told me at the time. What do you want to do then? I want to take the high school equivalency test and go to Cabrillo, she said. You can do that when you're 16. I looked at her and imagined her going to our local community college. 
I smiled. Let's drink to that, I said, and I clinked my margarita against her lemonade. Wow. And is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah. And that turned out to be my best school. Oh, Cabrillo College. Yeah. Oh, great. So that, that, that voice. I start hearing it even before I, I, I'm up again. This insistence and demand, even before I've hit the ground or realize what I've hurt. If I was superstitious, I might think of it as a blessing or a curse to have my mother's voice in my head. I am more careful because of it. I didn't used to look for clues in every fall. Why did this happen? What can I do to prevent it in the future? These questions have free reign of my brain. Falling is commonplace for me. There are times when I fling my clenches away from me. Sometimes people gather around to see if they can help. They used to grab my armpits and pull me up. That didn't work so well. It is hard to instantaneously regain my balance. Sometimes I let someone pick up my crutches. I am embarrassed by my falls. There are indications that I did something wrong. This isn't good. Falls are always going to be there one day. I'll find my balance. Wow. That's interesting because I think one's mother's voice stays in your head forever. But in your case, it's the pediological part of your mother feeding you the, now when you fall, I can just hear her, you know. When you fall, I want you to sit there and analyze what caused the fall so that it doesn't happen again, etc. I, I found that very interesting. And also that falling is embarrassing. You find it embarrassing where, for me, the few times that I've fallen, it's terrifying, you know, that I'm afraid. And doesn't occur to me to be embarrassed. So I found that really interesting. So I have a poem that... Uh, Explains it? Well, no, it doesn't explain it. Oh. It's kind of, and Becky was... This, this was written much later... <clears throat> than when Becky wrote that one, but this one's called She's 27 Now. I've stopped telling her to be careful, to watch for slippery leaves and potholes, cars and carpet edges. I've stopped telling her to relax so her words will come out easier. I've nearly stopped telling her not to chew with her mouth open. She doesn't do it that much anymore anyway. I'm going to stop telling her to consider graduate school where she'd be among peers who might appreciate her thinking. Yes, mother nagging is stopping right now. It is time. 
She is an adult. Wow. I'm not going to say it really worked. <laughs> and, <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a habit to control your children. My children are in their 60s, and I still find that very difficult, <laughs> very challenging. Motherhood in general mm -hmm. is challenging. It's challenging. And was there any final reading that you'd like to share, one of you um, or both of you? So when it, this is when Becky's young, and then the other one's going to be kind of at the end of the book. This is just a nice picture of how Becky's brain works. Monsters. There are monsters biting at my brain, Becky told us. She was five, maybe six. They won't go away. At night, in your dreams, I asked. No, in the day. When in the day? Just sometimes in the day. What do they look like? They have teeth all over. Can you tell them to go away, I asked her. I mean, look right at them and yell at them to get out of there? I tried that. I even put up signs in my brain saying, Go away, bugger off, close down forever. But it didn't do any good. We were sitting at the kitchen table. Rodney and I looked at each other and burst out laughing. What a kid. Where did she get the idea to do that? Well, that certainly was a good try, I told her. I wondered if there was any connection between biting her brain and the fact that she is brain damaged. Can you draw us a picture of one of the monsters? Rodney asked her. We got her a pencil and paper and she drew a shape with teeth all over it. She said the monsters were white. I have an idea, Rodney said. Let's make some cookies that look like your monsters. Then every time they come into your head, you can take a cookie and eat it. Shall we do that? Becky considered this plan and said yes. So Rodney made some cookie dough and cut out monster shapes using Becky's drawing. Then he put cornflakes all over them for the teeth and put them in the oven to bake. When the monster cookies were cool, we put them in a big glass jar on a low shelf so Becky could reach them. A few days later, she took a cookie and ate it. The monsters never came back. We finally threw the moldy cookies out. <laughs> so this is very short, the epilogue to the book. Becky's life has not turned out as I thought it would. I imagined an easier life. This was a girl with an amazing mathematical and logical mind and an indomitable spirit to go with it. As an infant, she lay in bed one night saying, grows, dies, grows, dies. What are you talking about, we asked. Life, she answered. As a seven-year-old, she put on Anna's roller skates and told me she was going to try them out. Really? I asked. Yes, you can either come outside and watch me or you can stay in here. I thought people, companies, organizations, colleges would want her on their team just to think. But no, she is disabled. She walks and talks funny. This makes people uneasy and it makes me mad and sad and wondering if there's anything I can do to change this and then asking myself if I should relax, breathe and understand that Becky is happy and is changing the world in small, important ways. Becky now lives in a place she loves in downtown Santa Cruz. She's near a terrific bookstore, several good restaurants, movie theaters, stores, and a great museum. She does freelance computer work, is active in disability organizations, takes care of her body, and has friends and family who love her. She is fiercely independent and has a wonderful sense of humor. You would be lucky to know her. That's lovely.
And what did you feel as your epilogue? I think you did write something, a conclusion, a reflection. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really an, an epilogue, but it, it's, 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 it's how I got in, involved in, in, in civic organizations having to do with disabilities. I first became interested after university and started going some email lists because at the time that's all they were. This was before blogs and stuff like that. And, and so I joined some nationwide email is and, and then eventually a friend told me about the Commission on Disabilities and made sure that I got on, on the, to that. And then different people on, oh, told me about other groups like the In-Home Support Advisory Committee and, and, and also different groups came to the Commission asking for help and so I ended up joining them too. And do you find activism satisfying? Yeah, because at least I'm not just sitting idly by letting all these things happen. And we have seen a lot of changes just in your short lifetime. A lot of changes. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's exciting. Yes, I do too. And I think that having you both here is exciting to see how this is passed on through the generations. You've always been a world changer. And you come from a family of world changers. And it, it kind of passed through the generations. Well, thank you both for sharing your work and being with us today. And how could people get this book? Well, Becky made us a website, which is www tellmethenumberbeforeinfinity.com and on that there's a list of ways they can get it but also you can go to Amazon and find it. Go to your independent bookstore and ask them to order it. So there's quite a few ways. So it's called Tell Me the Number Before Infinity and you can get it on Amazon and you can order it at the bookstore and you can go to your website. Right. Well thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you Nina. It was well, a pleasure. Well thank you so much Nina. Nicaraguan girl tells me she feels sad when it rains. Why, I ask? Because children die from rain? They fall in the deep open sewers and drown. A year later, it rained in Nicaragua for many days and nights. Hurricane Mitch blew, the lakes flooded, the mountains and volcanoes slid down and ate the town, spilling mud, covering people, houses, and animals. Arms and legs stuck up from the mud. Dead bodies floated on the lake. The little girl said she thought it was the apocalypse until the sun came out and the wind died down. 
families fled to the capital city to sleep in schoolyards. Crops, livestock, tools, and clothes gone. Hungry survivors grieved for the lost ones and worldly goods. I know why, the little girl says, she feels sad when it rains. While I was busy with other things, ocean broke waves, pounded the shore, roared relentlessly, foam, tossed logs, shells, stones, littered driftwood, erased footsteps, filled holes, etched a trail bed for the emptying river. Ocean caught the sun before it slipped, reflected the moon and dance to her tune. Summer. Did the sunlight burn off my morning anguish? Or was it the mockingbird singing? Trilling, chirping, and even imitating a cell phone ring into this long summer daylight, into this gently rambling twilight. Summer's glories pierce the gloom, reminding me of my Sometimes I feel your presence, how I felt when I was with you. In what dimension or what black hole do our shared moments still exist, spiraling through time? Which we are told does not exist because time and space are infinite. Then will there be no end as we expand infinitely? And all that past presence move with us. The edge inclines, brings you deeper into the water's embrace, enfolds you in its powerful flow. How strong the water is, so quick to change with the wind and gravitational pull of the moon, and movements of fish below and birds above. I feel like one grain of sand on the shore, one grain in the sea of time, one grain 
in this vast universe of stars, galaxy, and infinite space ever-changing. One grain compacted with others that form land, earth. One moist grain on the edge where water stretches to touch, to be carried with currents and returned with tide like love everlasting that washes in waves ashore with divine grace. What do we know about modern Iran? American citizens hear almost nothing beyond neocon belligerence from Washington. Foreign correspondent Reese Ehrlich is now offering us a clear, objective portrayal of Iran, historic seat of a major civilization, the second largest country in the Middle East. Ehrlich's new book is The Iran Agenda Today, the real story inside Iran and what's wrong with U.S. policy. He'll present his book, A Personal Mingling of Iranian Voices, with his own scholarly research. Thursday evening, November 15th, 7.30 at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. Norman Solomon and Sabrina Jacobs will participate. Is wheelchair accessible? Get tickets at supportive indie bookstores or at brownpapertickets.com. For Reese Ehrlich.